grew up uh, as a Roman Catholic and uh, met his wife, whom he'd been married to for 40 years, uh, a long time ago. And uh, in the process of meeting her, found the, the uh, truth of what we rejoice in, believe, and, and joined us a primitive Baptist. Uh, and has been one for quite some time. And as I said, serves as a deacon at the church where I try to serve as an elder right now. Uh, God gave Brother Todd a gift, not only as a carpenter or builder, but as a project manager of large projects. He's uh, He handled it from the small things to the big things, including inspection and scheduling and everything. And he's renovated bathrooms at Shoal Creek and renovated the building at Dallas and renovated the lunchroom over at Union, and Brother Randall told you when the tree fell on this building, he's the one that, that renovated and put it in place. Uh, in the course of that, I think Brother Todd and Brother Randall's friendship deepened, and Brother Randall uh, asked Brother Todd to introduce this subject uh, because of some trials and some overcoming that uh, went through on this. So. With that, uh, you all know, pray Jesus Christ to be glorified yes. and uh, turn it over to Brother Todd. Thank you. First off, it's, it's a blessing to be with everyone here today. I feel the Lord did on our meeting this weekend. Amen. Very Amen. much. I've gotten a whole lot out of it like I did last year. I have two questions I want to ask. The raise, raise of uh, hands will show the answer or it will show who's experienced what. How many of you have known somebody who has committed suicide? Please raise your hand. That's a good amount through the room. How many have you been able to, how many have you been able to talk to surviving suicide? Very few. After today, every one of you will have your hand raised through my testimony, my experience, and what the Lord has done for me. Um, I'm going to fast forward. It has a starting point. And with my personality, everyone knows I'm probably a, a triple-A personality. I'm a leader. I get it done. I can handle anything that's thrown out at me. And some key words I wanted to, us to remember through this, uh, this, this experience. And again, Randall asked me to do this. I didn't ask to do it. I didn't script anything. I just thought about it a little bit. I pray that the Lord will give me the words to express to you what my experience so you can learn from it and see what happens to an individual that goes through something like this. And I'm thankful I survived. And you'll see the thankfulness through what I'm about to say. I found that God is merciful. God is forgiving. God is loving. God is healing. God blesses us with a tremendous amount of miracles, and some of them we don't even know. We walk right by it every day. This is a miracle we're here today. And most of all, God is full of grace. His grace on our, our salvation, on our lives, His lovingness, His caring. So, I liken my experience to the door over here. The door is closed. When we're in here talking about the Lord, guess who can't get in and get us? Satan. He can't come in. He's not here. But we open that door, him, he and his pals are out there waiting for us because we're leaving. And if we're not prepared, we can get absorbed by it. So, Amen. 
It starts with me. Um, I'm in the middle of my career in my mid-40s. Uh, and in 2005, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I'm, I mean, this happened three years ago with my incident, but I gotta go back to where it all started so you kind of see the outline, see the path. Uh, I had melanoma cancer. They took a big hunk out of my side. Go on. The next year, it came back. This time it traveled to tumors and it spread through my body. When it starts spreading through your body and getting your lip done, they call that stage four. And that's what happened to me. So, okay, let's get through this. Let's keep going. I was a member at Forsyth Primitive Baptist Church at that time. Brother James Hurd was my pastor. Good man. He took me to my appointments. He was right there. He was for us. He was very caring. So, okay, had a couple of surgeries. I uh, had to recover from staph infection from the hospital, so I'm on to my oncologist. So he lays out the, um, the, pro the, the program for me, the treatment. And it's only a theory. It's not a cure. He said, I remember his word. This is a theory. You're going to go through 20 rounds of chemotherapy in a month, every day, five days a week for a month. Okay? And after that, you're going to continue on for the rest of the year for three times a week. Okay, let's go. And then he said, I'm going to pres prescribe some medicine for you. And he said, uh, you're going to be taking Zoloft. And I didn't know what Zoloft was, because you're going to get depressed. What you're about to go through, it causes severe depression. Well, I didn't believe in depression at that time. I was raised, if you could get out of bed and you were sick, if you were sick and could get out of bed, go to work. That was my dad, hard. And I'm glad he was. He shaped me. But that wasn't really good either. So I didn't take the medicine. So that's when the door opened a little bit. The door opens more and more as things progress. So I go through this treatment of every day for the first month. And the position I had in my career, I was a, uh, there was, I was a division president of a national home building company in the southeast. And it was a big job. We did Two, three, we did over $300 million a year in sales, and I had half the company. And it was a tremendous amount of work. It was a tremendous amount of stress, and I could take it back then. I could deal with it. You could put anything in front of me, I could take care of it. I had to please the shareholders with profits, and we had to do that with a team of people internally. So I, uh, I scheduled my uh, chemotherapy as late in the day as possible so I could work as long as I could during the day. Go home, go to bed, wake up, start all over again. I mean, I lost a lot of weight, I, started, I got sick, and all this happened, was, was happening to my body and the changes. So by the end of the month, I was in a very severe depression. Um, depression set in, anxiety set in. And this is back in 2006. So we're about to come to a miracle from God. Number one, I got through the treatment. And the oncologist said, he said, well, congratulations, this is your last treatment. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, most people don't survive the treatment. They either die or they quit. And I didn't know I had an option. I was raised to take the medicine, you know, and still do. So, okay. So we go on, and then uh, a little bit later, my, uh, I started going through the rest of the year. And my performance was going down on my job. My body was changing, mentally and physically. 
there was something going on, and I still wasn't taking the medicine. And um, eventually, I had this, the anxiety was really bad, the depression was really bad, and I reported the chief operating officer, and he uh, said, Tom, I think you need to resign. Well, that was devastating. I was fighting hard to get through this. And I said, okay, you know, I was so weak, I just said, okay. He said, go tomorrow to the uh, HR and you'll get your separation package. So I get in there. And uh, remember, this story is not about me. It's about what the Lord has done. And uh, first miracle, I'm still alive. Here comes the second miracle. As I walk in there and he says, well, I say, uh, what's, my, what's my separation package? Well, there is none. Oh, okay. I'm not resigning. I'm going out on FMLA. Who knows what FMLA is? FMLA is a Family Medical Leave Act that Bill Clinton put together for corporations. If you're sick or your family's sick, then you can leave for three months and renew it, and you won't lose your job. You won't lose your position. You won't lose your salary. So they got the papers out. I signed them, and I went on. And I was very comfortable. I knew God had this. I knew it. Two days later, I got a call from HR. Hey, Todd, did you know you have a policy with us? It was, called, it was a disability policy through the Metropolitan Life. It exceeded well over a million dollars, and I qualified for it. So therefore, okay, I qualified, I took it. And one of the things was me being able to return back to my position and, and be capable of performing the job that I was designed to do. I couldn't do it. My body had changed so bad, and I was so weak, I'm not going to do this. So that was a miracle to get that. I was 47 years old, retired. Don't have to work anymore. I'm done. That's not my personality. <laughs> Remember that. Okay. So from there, I'm dealing with, still dealing with a lot of anxiety. Um, depression was coming and going. I did eventually start taking some medicine, and we had to change medicine several times. Even in that, I I put myself. Okay, the Lord's blessed me with this miracle to be able to not have to work anymore, so what am I going to do? Brother Marty tells us one Sunday that Dallas is buying a building to, uh, to renovate a building. Okay, I thought I could help them with this. I can be their project manager. And that was a start. I'm gonna go, not going to go through every project they did, but um, that's where the Lord was directing me. He saved me from that job. The oncologist said, if you don't, if you don't quit your job, you're going to die not from the cancer, just because of what I was doing to my body. That was another sign. So, and this all ties in. I do have to say this, Brother Victor. I go down there. Some of you heard this story before. They were buying this building. It must have been built in the 1890s. But it was the 1940s, I think. 1940s? An old VFW home? Yes. I mean, it was a dance floor in there. That whole floor was just all oak. I walk in there, they're just full of despair. They're all giddy and smiling and happy. I look around and I thought, burn it down. <laughs> quick. Real quick. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. And I said, well, how much money y'all have? Not a lot. <laughs> and, and okay, I started feeling it. I said, we can do this. And we all know the story. The Lord provided. Building got done. God's blessed your yes, church down to, to the max to me. Alright, so I go on and do all these other things. So then, I'm starting to feel that my career was pulled out from under me because of the transformation in my body, my chemical makeup, depression, anxiety. I just couldn't get rid of it. And for everyone who knows me, they would say, never saw that in you. I was a good hire. 
I hit it well. I hit it for my family. I just kept going. And then it just starts building and building. That door starts opening more and more and more. Around 2016, 17, we had some very bad tragedies in our family with three deaths. Not need to go into, but it was one of them was just more than about I could handle. And I did not go to my pastor, which I should have. If your flock comes to you more, you would know more about them. I heard yesterday, if deacons know something that's going on, they should take it to the pastor. You know, I listened to that. I listened to it. Because, uh, and so with me, my mental state started getting worse. We started shifting medicines. And then it got to the point where I started breaking down. And I think you'll remember this, Brother Marty. I was treasurer. And you'll remember, I can't do this no more. I didn't realize what was happening, but it was happening. I just could, I couldn't do it. I just, I just didn't have the mental strength to do it. My body was shutting down. And then some other things happened. And I was not seeking the Lord like I should. Like I know, I wasn't. That door was opening more. If we think about Job, you know, his wife said, curse God and die. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Job wasn't thinking of suicide. I wasn't Job. People say, you're like Job. I'm not Job. Job never gave up. He never quit loving the Lord. I got into that darkness. And Satan was coming in. It's a real thing. Mm-hmm. It's real. And it happened to me. And then uh, they put me on some medicine. After going through all that, other things were going on too. And it was a medicine that uh, the biggest side effect was suicide. I didn't know it. Mm. Prozac. You ever heard of somebody on Prozac? Run. <laughs> yeah, and we, we found out, we knew people that were on Prozac who knew somebody, they committed suicide. It happened. So all these things are going on in your body, and that's not my personality. Remember, I'm the one that didn't believe in depression. I just strode forward, but I was in it. And I just thought to keep taking the medicine. Then my body starts, wouldn't get out of bed. It was like getting out of bed when I did with two cinder blocks trying to walk around. You just can't move. Then you start getting this inner feeling. The depression is set in. The anxiety is more than you can handle. I'm taking um, Xanax like you wouldn't believe to try to cope with it. And, but when that wore off, it was there again. I even medicated some with alcohol. And... That's not good because what happens when you when that wears off, you're in it worse than you were before. Mm-hmm. So, and so, so it just gets worse and worse. I couldn't see the light of the day. I couldn't. Um, I didn't. I lost all my emotions. I lost what I loved. My wife is so dear to me. We've been married for forty years, and she's so supportive. Brother Marty's been so supportive, but I just held it in. That's the worst thing that happened. It's holding it in. So now we're getting down to how God's going to be merciful and forgiving and loving and healing and more miracles. It was on a Monday, August 30th, 2020. I'm not going to get graphic, but what I did, I'll tell you what I did. I had a 9mm plus pistol. I had a full metal jacket in that, in that cartridge. I took that gun. This is the miracle. You're not going to believe it. I can show you a picture. I took the gun, point blank, at a sternum. What's on the side of your sternum right here? Your heart. Bow. Okay? Before I did that, 
I don't know why I did it. I don't even know why I was where I was. I have no idea. I was in the church parking lot down the street. I sent Brother Marty a text. It was instructive. And I wasn't looking for, you know, for attention. I said, this is what I want to do. And bam, he got it. And after I sent that text, I put that phone down and, and the incident happened. Okay, so he calls my wife, all this goes on. A couple days later, I wake up in the hospital. I'm alive. But the first thing I felt was, I didn't feel the pain anymore. The pain was gone. But I wasn't out of it yet because I was in very bad shape. Um, the bullet did not penetrate to the sternum. In fact, when I woke up, there was no pain here at my sternum. It's just this little dot where the, the bullet went in. That bullet traveled. Well, God took that bullet. It's down in my spine. It went through my upper lumbar into the spine. It fractured two vertebrae going in, so it broke my back. Went down to the spinal canal, and it's resting in the L5 right against the sciatica nerve. That's where it is today. They wouldn't take it out because it, you know, some problems. So it missed every major organ in my body. You know, think what you'd have from here to here. And it was back here. That's a miracle. So I wake up. I was in the hospital. I said, okay, I'm going to go forward. I was repenting. I was thankful. I was, I was prepared to anything that was to happen to me. I was prepared. Even paralysis. They thought I had paralysis when I first woke up. And eventually I started moving, moving, you know, moving my feet. And then from there, you know, the back problems and all that. So I was fighting, still I feel a spiritual warfare. It was still going on in my hospital. I think it was the end of it. And I don't think God just takes you right out of these things and, okay, you're going to be all fine. You get to go on. Oh, no, I was hallucinating every moment of the time in there when I was awake and when I was sleeping. From there, after, after um, a week, they put me, they carried me over to, I call the nut house, to the mental hospital. Okay, so I get in there. This is another miracle. I get in there, off the meds. They took away my back brace. You know, I, I couldn't walk. I had to crawl almost. I get in there. I'm in the um, eviction ward. And that was a sight because my son, I was there for two days. They put me there because they couldn't get me to the other ward. And when I got there, I'd go in, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, make your bed. They weren't going to do anything for you. I couldn't walk. It took me well, so long to make that bed and lie down. I just in total pain, but I was fine. I was alive and I was okay. My son has been a heroin addict for over 10 years. He's probably overdosed six times. He's, he's a loving son. I love him, but he's destructive to himself. So what I was seeing in that two days... I was seeing what my son was living. I was put in that, I wasn't put in there by chance. The Lord put me there to see what was going on, to get a better understanding, and I'm thankful for that. And then from there I got onto the side of the Lord, and then I and then I got out. And then Brother Marty was there for me. My wife was there, loving arms. Nobody was judging. Um, I was repenting. Was I ashamed? I couldn't be because I didn't understand the whole thing. But I understood where it came from. Satan got in there, spiritual warfare. These things just started escalating, escalating, escalating. The pain that's in your body, I can't describe to you what it is. 
Because if you haven't been through what I'm through, you've never been there. You might have gone through some hard times. You might have thought, I wish I was dead, but you know, you didn't do anything about it. So a lot of people they say that's just a, a phrase. So how am I going to start moving on is what the next step is. Okay, so the incident happened. It led up to it. took time to get there. I wasn't recognizing. It happened. Now where do we go from here? Um, they put me on some different medicine, which was fine. It worked. It was good. But uh, what the Lord revealed to me during that time was more than a lifetime. I was alive. So I started getting more engaged again. Put yourself with the Lord's people. Put yourself with learning. Yes. Don't stop. You have to surround yourself with that. So, more, you know, Bible studies twice a week here, union. Um, make sure you're at church on Sunday, every Sunday you can. Be engaged with people. Be at these meetings. Be at the meeting last year. And here I am. But um, not sure what you can take away from what I've told you, but what I can tell you is it could be happening in your congregations at home. And if you don't open your eyes to it, you've got to recognize what's happening. Depression starts. How do you know when someone's depressed? Change of moods. Change of habits. Not going to work. Not getting out of bed. Um, alcohol consumption. Um, anxiety. Things they say. And a lot of times in our society, we run away from it. We don't want to be part of it. We always put... Uh, Suicide, depression, anxiety, and those things in the closet. But it needs to be out of the closet to help those people, because how many people can you help? They're out there. Has anybody counseled somebody that was suicidal? Nobody. Okay. Well, right there. We got one? Yeah, we got one over here. Okay, we got one. We got two. And I know your testimony last night was you had three people, and I'm sure you would love to have talked to them before that happened. You'd love to know what was going on. But what I'm telling you today, this was what's going on. You're just so isolated. You, you get in that position and it's kind of like, it's not you. It's definitely not you. But you can, you can get out. It's a disease. And it's not, it doesn't come on overnight. I, don't, I didn't plan what I did that day. It happened that day. And that's with anybody. But you have to recognize the signs. And take action. If you don't take action, you're part of the problem. And I'm not putting any blame on anybody, but I know you as pastors, as leaders, um, is you preach from the pulpit, you watch the actions and the moods of your congregation, your family, your friends, and you can recognize awareness. I wouldn't answer any questions if anybody would have any, but I think that's, uh, that's what I have to say. That's my story. I hope it was beneficial. And I'm thankful today I'm here talking to y'all. Yeah. First time I've done it like this. But if you have any questions, any of them, I'd be glad to answer them. So you confessed that you covered up any signs or symptoms. Yes. So how does one, what, what could have been detected from someone else? Um, that they could have helped you with when you were covering it up. How, how would we? My attendance was going down, and I'm not, you know, I'm not. He's not on trial. He's not on trial. Um, attendance. 
my attendance started going down. Um, like I said, as a deacon, I gave up the treasury. I said I couldn't handle it at that time. Something was going on. It's a, it's, it's recognizing it. Okay. So you're going through cancer treatments. You're sick. Your body's changing. Your attendance going down is almost expected for someone nope. that's that sick. But I was. There's a time difference between cancer okay. at 07 and what happened in 2020. Okay. There's a lot of years in between. Okay. Oh. A lot of years in between. So you know, back after I left my job and was done with the treatments, the ones that know me that was doing all these church projects, Todd's a great person to be around. He's, he's full of the spirit. He's got a great attitude. And I was doing fine then. But it was working on me. It was working. Because, again, your body does change when you go through something like that. That much chemical interference from something like chemotherapy. They say that people who have um, bypasses, cancer like I have, have an extreme amount of risk of depression, anxiety. And depression and anxiety, they go together. They're, they're right next to each other. Were you on the medication during that whole 13-year period, the antidepressants? I was on different antidepressants, yes. And um, they, it, it seemed to never get a good balance. It was, I had ups and downs and ups and downs. And when I got to the Prozac, that's when it went way down. The reason I ask that is because several members of my family have been, and those things can really be unpredictable, and it's it's scary uh, what it, those medications can do. I agree, and I believe in medicine for yeah, the right purpose. Right. I believe in doctors that prescribe them. I believe the doctors have been blessed to prescribe them for us. But you take a combination of, of all these different tragedies through life that just kept compounding. It was like a ton of a load on my shoulder all the way down to all the family things that I had to go through. I was the leader of our family and had to bury three family members. And um, one of them was a, a very grim experience for me. Very grim. Uh, and then, you know, I guess the final straw was I just couldn't handle it no more. And that was the day. I'll say, I'll say this, if you know anybody that's taking Prozac, be on. Be, be doubly, triply aware of what's going on. My brother-in-law was taking Prozac, and, and it, he was hearing all the voices in his head, and um, mm -hmm. he took himself off of it. And uh, he, he didn't last a few days after mm -hmm. he took himself off of it. It's be on, be on guard and be aware of what's out mm -hmm. there. I'd like to comment on that. The, doc the doctor prescribes medicines for a reason, even if it's antibiotics, and they want you to take the whole medicine. On something like antidepressants, what it's doing is it's it's changing the chemical balance of your brain. It's filling in the gaps that you didn't have before, and it's helping, and it can help. And the worst thing that a person on antibiotics can, I mean, uh, antidepressants can do is take them off yourself. You have to yep. take them off in a doctor's care. Mm -hmm. If you don't, something like that could happen. Yep. And I had done that from time to time too. Not with that, but others. I just can't have. I just don't like this anymore. I'm not taking it anymore. That was wrong. And that wasn't helping either. So be aware of, of someone, uh, someone's mental state, their mental, you know, what's going on. It's okay to take the medicine. It's okay. We're not freaks of society. We're just trying to get better. And uh, I am better. Ever since uh, getting out of the hospital, I'm better. And I'm not hiding it either. I'm not hiding it.
Yes, sir. Can you describe or define your anxiety a little bit better? Maybe, maybe you did, and I missed it. I just don't. I don't. I don't know what people mean by having anxiety. A lot of times when I listen to that, it describes to me growing up. I was just nervous about something until I did it a few times, and I got over the nervous disorder. We might have described somebody as being shy back then, where it seems like there's an abundance of labeling nowadays. Yes, yeah. And so can you describe your anxiety? Yes, yes. That's a good, very good question. Um, first off, it's, it starts with your body. Increased heart rhythm constantly is anxiety. Increased high blood pressure is anxiety. Um, Just your body reacting for no reason? That... Uh, anxiety comes on by events. Okay. By event. Tragic event could be tragic events. Okay. Could be not looking forward to doing something. That's a short term. But for continuous, it's being affected by certain events. Um, and this is, it's very difficult to explain. Okay. Uh, because I know the feeling, but it's a feeling, it's something that it just doesn't go away. Not knowing what to do with yourself. Not knowing what to do with yourself. Sleeping is a problem. Not sleeping because you're just, you're just wound up. You can't wound down. Insomnia. I went through um, the insomnia when I was on the chemotherapy. I went through five days and six, five nights and six days, no sleep. I've never been through anything like that in my life. And, I mean, I had a nervous breakdown. And that was the chemical changing. It was anxiety in there. It was depression in there. It was the medicine. It was the chemotherapy. It was everything. There, there's and, a multitude of things then. Uh, that's right. In, in, involved in, in this box, there's a multitude of things. Yes. So you're saying depression, which I'm thinking sleeping all the time. But then you're saying anxiety, which leads to insomnia and not sleeping. So... Oh. You really just messed up all across the board then. Well, let me just go back to sleeping all the time. Not getting out of bed all the time. When you're having anxiety and depression, you're just in the bed, curled up in a ball in okay. a lot of pain. Okay. okay, and also that brings on insomnia. Even at the, uh, before the incident, I hadn't been sleeping. And I, ever since the chemotherapy, I had a sleeping disorder. I never took um, Ambien or anything like that. I just dealt with it. But I should have been doing something with it, but nothing um, addictive. Uh, but uh, that's part of it, too. I mean, it brings you into insomnia. You're just broke up in a call in, in a ball. You're in bed at night. You're just laying there. You're looking at the clock all night long. What time is the sun going to rise? What time is the alarm going to go off? What time do you get up? And that creates an anxiety of, of fear. Anxiety is related to, with fear. I've heard it constantly. I've heard it referred to as a constant fight or flight response. Whether that's over something known, something you're consciously aware of, which is where we generally associate it, is tragedy, something has happened, I'm not looking forward to something, and there's a fight or flight response. But there's also these, the, the, where it gets into the mental health specifically as a, as a diagnosable tendency is that there's the body feels that fight or fight. It feels that danger. It, it thinks there's something out there. The mind does. And there may or may not be. So it's constantly in that fight or flight mode. 
That's right. That's that's a good that's a good way so, to put it. So so the heart races, the blood pressure goes up. Pressure it's goes physically up. reacting to what you're feeling. Yeah. The mind thinks there's something out there, even if there is not. It's it's a it's a response. It's a defense mechanism. It's a psychosis then of some sort. It's, mm -hmm. it's a I would, I could, it's, board, it's a borderline psychotic break almost. Mm -hmm. I would, I would you, say you're not seeing things as far as a full-on disorder. That right, but you think there's something. Okay, or you may not think, but the but subconsciously there's almost a hyper awareness to you know. So you remember you remember as a kid you hear the noise in the house yeah. and you think something there. Well, the mind thinks it's heard the noise in the house and it thinks something there, right. even though it's not. But it's causing the same reaction. You've had an adrenaline rush before. You know what that feels like. So it's an adrenaline rush that that never then tapers down. It just stays with you. And people will have anxiety attacks because it's their body reacting to that. It's a buildup of stress, but then there are also triggers for it uh, before. And the, the thing that's frustrating, so I've had a couple of anxiety attacks a long time ago, but my several family members have dealt with this. And the thing is, the difference in nervousness is you can kind of talk yourself down from nervousness and reason with yourself. You can't do it with this. You can't, uh, you can't talk yourself down. You can't, um, you can't calm yourself down. You can't reason your way out of it. It's just, uh, it is, it's stifling. You're creating multiple problems thinking, and the problems don't exist. There's just one problem after another. You're just creating, and that's what's driving your anxiety even higher and higher. It might be something something very simple about paying bills. It might be something that um, you think that's going to happen that's not going to happen, would never happen. That's part of it, too. And part of the congregation, I know that with uh, there's several members of my family that have it, so it is uh, hereditary. And so if you know your congregation, just be aware that if there is depression in one generation, there's a good chance that there's going to be depression in the next generation and the next. For example, I have 13 first cousins, and I think four of them, a third of them, suffer from depression. And my grandmother uh, suffered from depression. So we know it's in that family, and we're aware of that, so we look for the signs. Yeah. In our family, my family, we looked into that too, and we couldn't find any. So maybe it it's it's just it's I think it was it, it wasn't something that was in the family I think it was something that started from what I what I was uh, going through starting back to the chemotherapy the change stuff changed me so, so question um, so we have a church member that has panic attacks anxiety can't hold a job won't drive so unless his wife's with him and not very far or not in town so he struggles with this kind of symptoms all the time. I've never thought of him as being depressed. He seems to be upbeat. Of course, he could be hiding. But mm -hmm. it does bother him at times when, like, there's been times when I've tried to get him to meet me at the church to help. He will drive to the church, which is a mile from his house, and mow. But, and, and I've got him a couple times to meet me there to help me with something. But he gets very anxious. He won't. I don't live much further than that from him. But he won't come to my house to help me on something. He's too anxious. He, he gets these panic attacks. 
He's got it. But he works. I mean, he's remodeled their house. He works all the time, but he can't hold a job. His mm -hmm. wife holds a job, and he works there at the house. He takes care of kids, cooks, cleans, does all kinds of projects. And but So I've never known how to help him, mm -hmm. how to. I don't know that I can. I don't know that I'm qualified. He's, he's on some medications, and they change it periodically. Yeah. And, and, but so I, maybe I should ask but Marty how do as a pastor how do you I mean I try to be understanding supported realize his limitations but they've never invited me to counsel with him or and I've somewhat offered to try to you know from the scripture but I don't know that it's a well I, I don't know it would be awful if he committed suicide and then I had to deal with, well, you, you didn't do anything as a pastor. Yeah. Or maybe you're more vigilant than I, but I'll, I'll say this. There's a few hours gap there. Uh, by thanks to God, God led him in the midst of that darkness to send a text where he told me what he's going to do and that he'd be in his truck. And... He was in this parking lot, and he was going to end it. And so I got Sandy, and we jumped in the car and rode over there, and I knew from where I started to that parking lot was 30 minutes, but Sister Debbie, Brother Todd's wife, was five minutes away. And so as hard as it was, while I was driving, I asked Sandy to call Sister Debbie. So she got there well before we did, just because of proximity. And again, the providence of God, she got there and was there when some first responders, fire, firemen or EMTs were driving by. And they came by and got him quickly. Uh, just happened to be going by there. And so by the time we reached the parking lot in 30 minutes, uh, they had ambulance on the way and got him to the hospital and they began putting together shattered blood vessels because it missed, I guess you got told all of this later, mm, yeah. missed the major organs, but that's still, uh, if you don't put the blood vessels back together, still got a hemorrhage. And I will say this now, Brother Todd's got the bullet in him now, and he's in a lot of pain often, maybe now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, he's still in a lot of pain, but... You rarely ever meet people as positive or as effective as Brother Todd. He gets things done. How many times you had three three times cancer and go into remission? Twice. 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 On one occasion, he'd lost the sight in his eye and a tumor was growing from the back of his eye and I could look in the pupil and see that. That was the third time. That was the third time. Third time. Three times. Cancer survivor. And I could look inside, and he said, it's having it taken out from a glass eye. And, of course, usually you commiserate. And he says, he says, I'm not sad about this. For most people, getting a glass eye means the loss of vision. To me, it doesn't mean the loss of vision. It means just the loss of pain. That's right. And so that's exactly what he said. So, I mean, he was looking at the loss of an eye as a positive. Okay. <laughs> what I should have seen... Since there was not really much of a change of attitude, as a change of habits. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, and what I probably should have noticed is that I've been, uh, you know, there were the three deaths in the family, and as he said, one of them was yeah. gruesome. Mm -hmm. 
it was it was harsh and he he had to basically go take care of it there himself uh, and that sets up post-traumatic stress syndrome so in addition to depression there there was that uh, and what I would have done different other than maybe pray more and converse more I don't know yeah. I don't know yeah. uh, there are some therapies that are pretty effective for PTSD I've recommended those uh, but then there was the long term depression and the effect of the medication and at least one medication had been prescribed for much longer than it probably should probably should have been prescribed for short term duration and not steady tapering off but uh, that, one was, that one was there for a long time so I'm just I'm thankful to God and thankful to Brother Todd that he sent that text I possibly have that text in my phone uh, and that the Lord kept him alive not only able to do things but I mean he's returned to he's returned to do this yeah. we're sitting in the the work we're sitting in is post suicide attempt so, what he just did Amen. He's willing to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. brother, you took your clothes off like what he said the other day. I mean, you're transparent. <laughs> that's right. You oh yeah. It all. I mean, and that, that's part of the healing. That, bless that, your heart. That's Amen. part of it. It's it's to you mean because you're bearing it all. You know? Yeah, and, and I knew that. That was part of that was part of what I was feeling in in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. Brother Todd, just a question to kind of on what Brother Daryl's saying. Had Brother Marty reached out to you, how receptive of that would you have been as a pastor reaching out unsolicited? I don't know that answer. To, yeah. to say. I, I, I don't so, know. in that deal, how would you? Yeah. Would See, I know how I would today. Yeah. yeah. Today, but then I don't know um, because let's do the flip side of that. How about me going to Brother Marty? Well, you weren't in the right mind, too. That's right. But him coming to me and hiding it, I couldn't have been in the right mind. So right. it's predictable that exactly. I wouldn't have been receptive. Right. And, and I wouldn't have been hiding it as well. Right. And even when he was saying, even one more, I lost. They, they gave me over 12 units of plasma and blood. Wow. I, I, I was, I died on the table. And I, I don't share this a lot. I don't know if I've shared it Maybe with Brother Martin, I, I'm not going to go all the way in it, but something happened to me at some point of unconsciousness to consciousness of what I experienced from the Lord. There's something I had happened to me that was very calming. It was it was real. I felt fine. I felt at peace. It, it was a vision, and they say people have those experiences. Well, I'm not going to go into the experience. I had it because I can't tell you what it is. I know what it is. That's all. There's the Lord. He he loves us. Thank you for sharing that. Thank yeah. You. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, this is. I think this is the first time. Have I shared that with you before? Oh my God. I don't think so. I don't know. But I, it's, it's. Why did you send the text, brother? I don't know. I. You know. I. I don't know. Why did I pull the trigger? Do you remember? Do you remember? I remember the text. I remember pulling the trigger. I remember the burning I felt, and then I was out. I remember that. Um, then I remember waking up. You know, in ICU. 
Um, I wrote a note too. I don't, I don't even know what was in it. Yeah, you left that there in the truck. Yeah. I think part of it, I wanted to be buried up here at this cemetery. Because we don't have burial plots. I wanted to be up there. That was part of it. And I've never thought of that before. You know, it was no planning. 30 years from now, how about that? How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go with Yeah. But I am thankful for each and every one of you. I think it's an important question that, that you asked, though, from this perspective, is that as pastors, when we're, um, when we have, when we're faced with an issue like that, um, obviously we want to care for our flock in any kind of problem they have, whether it's physical or mental or spiritual, but we also have to know our domain is primarily spiritual, because mm -hmm. you're not, if they come to you and they've got a heart problem, they've got pain in your heart, you've got to tell them to go to a cardiologist, right? Well, if they come to you with a certain mental issue then they need to see you can help them spiritually but you need to we need to send them to professionals to get professional help and so dividing that correctly is um, I think it's very important for a pastor to do to not you know not neglect referring them to professional help if they if you think they might need it there's a wide range of Christian psychologists and counselors out there um, that are not just secularly trained and have a, you know, not necessarily the, the, the spiritual or theological background, but they're Christians. And, and they care about the whole person as well. You know, you, you'd hope to find a, a, a physical doctor, a physiologist, that cares about the whole person. And, and there are those. It's not, you know, sure, someone maybe snake oil, some of the things of the world and, and treatments like Floyd did. Um, but the reality is there are good Christian psychologists and counselors that have spent their lives, help, lives helping folks and have helped folks. Uh, and they're widely available out there. I, I think that, that's a good recommendation. I think what we're hearing right now is for y'all to research, where are they, who are they? Yeah. To have them in your back pocket just in case. I think that, that's good advice. So where, so where is the line between the spiritual and physical? Mm. <laughs> that remember I mentioned the door open mm -hmm. the door cracks you're still in the spiritual when that door really opens wide midway and going past midway that's where it goes the other way and where is that that's just um, what's happening in that person without getting any help so the way that I would answer both. the way that's I would answer that is, oh sorry go ahead the way I would answer that is the spiritual covers everything. You can't separate it. There's no clear delineation. For example, there's a if somebody's hurt, you want to be there for them spiritually to deal with that physical ailment. If they're suffering from a mental illness, you want to be there for them spiritually to deal with that. So the spiritual never goes away. It's it's when to know that your spiritual counseling is not what they need right then. They need the cardiologist, they need the psychiatrist who can prescribe the you know medicine that they need. I think that's what I was trying to communicate is that you you have to know when to make sure they're getting the care <coughs> that they want. You know, we we tend to not think about mental illness the same way we do physical ailments. Um, I had this experience and um, I was visiting a church out of state and they asked me to pray after the service was over. And I don't usually pray this, but I prayed for 
those suffering from, there have been several mentioned, those suffering from physical ailments, Lord bless him, and then also those suffering from mental ailments. And at lunch, this man came up to me crying and saying that he had suffered from mental illness his whole life, and that was the first time he'd ever heard anybody pray for the mentally ill. We pray for the physically ill all the time, but it was the first time. And that, and that really hit me, you know, that we need to be concerned. The other thing you can do is, um, is it's not only going to the person that you feel needs some help, is talk to their loved ones around them to see what you can uh, compile to what's going on with that person. Mm-hmm. And again, with the case with your, um, uh, the, the, the member that has anxiety, maybe he's not getting the right care. Um, that's not, you know, so that goes into asking somebody else. You don't want to offend anybody or step on your toes. But that's, that's not... That doesn't help. Just don't worry about offending somebody because it could save their life. So his, his own medicine and the way they deal with it is they avoid anything that causes them anxiety. Well, that means he's, he's very likely does, um, uh, he stays in a comfort zone. Yeah. Yes. I mean... He doesn't want to get out of his comfort zone. Is, is he a quiet person? Yeah. Does he have Asperger's? No. Has he ever been... Because that's, 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 an, that's an Asperger's. Yeah, it, I've never seen any symptoms of that. But um, withdrawn is. Well, he's not. He's not withdrawn. Or not. 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 Not uh, engaged with. You know, is a quiet person. He's, he's quiet, but he's very friendly and open to friends. Mm-hmm. As long as. And I'm not a You don't get him out of his comfort zone. Yeah. And that seems to be location. If he's at home, if he's at church, he's fine. You get him. In a big city in traffic, and he'll, he'll if he's driving, he may freeze, mm-hmm. and have a wreck, because he, he panics, he can't respond, and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, might be a, it's, that so might be drives. yeah that might be just the way you know his his personality makeup too. We all have that, guess, and I'm not an expert. Remember that I'm not an expert. I guess my point was they should probably be in conjunction. The spiritual with the physical, sure. not just refer them to get physical help, but also be there, kind of like on a continual basis spiritually to help pray, guide, whatever. That way, not just well, that's not my league. <laughs> Go to the cardiologist. Yeah. Well, here, here's something that's else. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. With with mental with with mental illness and anxiety, and the ones that it leads to depression is. Um, there's a law out there that uh, if you suspect somebody, you can, you can make a call and have them picked up to go somewhere if you think they're going to harm themselves. Because if you can cover, your, cover them up with love and try to find out what's going on, they might come, they might come out. Because suicide people, if, if they talk to people about it and something was done, we wouldn't have suicide. And like myself, it was, it was held in. I think that's the most of it. It's a secret. We did call nine one one too, but I knew Sister Debbie would get to you faster than me. <laughs> yeah. But but it's about leading leading up to it. Um, it it's just it's, you're going to suspect somebody, um, and we're talking about depression and anxiety different from suicide, because you get this depression and anxiety, then you get to the suicide mm-hmm. when it leads to it. So it's about um, trying to get it out of them, or if you feel I think this guy's going to hurt themselves, and you really see a big difference, don't hesitate. Are you asking 
you asked where's the line model? Are you asking? Obviously, there's a there's a mental problem that we're addressing. So, are you asking where's the line between the problem being only mental or the mental problem being caused by the spiritual? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, exactly. Because because there's a, a spiritual there's an evil disconnect spirit. or or an evil spirit. We I know we don't like to talk about demons, possessions, things like that, but you know, do we consider that there is a spiritual affliction causing the mental? Right? Am I asking that right? And it, and how do we address that, or how do we recognize your mental affliction is a spiritual connection also? But do we we still have to get help for the mental while we address the spiritual at the same time. Am I asking that right? Does that make sense? Yeah, I understand what you're saying, exactly, because there is a, uh, um, I mean, as far as, uh, there is a point where you, you, the spiritual never goes away. We've discussed that. Yeah. But in the mental, that, it's I call it the, um, the, the, the spiritual warfare the separation. Mm-hmm. When does the separation, you know, when, when are you separated? If you're, you're depressed and anxiety, you can still be full of spirit. You know, you're just going through this, but w- at what point does you start go, crossing the line and going over to the, to the um, you know, Satan's really got a hold of you. Paul, well, Paul talks about imaginations. Paul says, casting out imaginations that exalt themselves against the knowledge of Christ. So, I, I guess maybe we're trying to tread into that Area that imagination is either self-inflicted or it's demonically inflicted. Mm-hmm. I I, that I can't answer. Was that ever? Was that ever an issue with you then, or was yours strictly brought on because you went through chemo and then you also had the deaths in the family and? It, and all the other thing, I just I, it, it, for me it was change, okay. change in my body it was not only the, you know what what they did to me just in my life today, but also the uh, the uh, exhausting experiences that I was going through too. And it wasn't just on the three deaths; it was you know other things that compiled. So it was just all these weights that were just weighing me down mm-hmm. and bringing on the pain. I guess it depends. Yeah, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> it depends. I will, I will say, as far as change, there is a, I am, I'm familiar with someone who is a grief recovery specialist. And what I want to clarify is grief does not always mean death. Grief is usually brought on by change, whether it's a happy occasion as in marriage and the change that is affected or, or a new job and a move and it's changed that way. That brings on things that um, grief recovery can help. Grief recovery, um, I have a friend who is a grief recovery specialist, and it is an eight-step process that once you use it, you can use it over and over and over again throughout your life to deal with change, whether it be death, divorce, a new job, a wedding, a new baby. Some of those brings about so much change that postpartum depression or whatever might happen, but we have that available to us. If you are not familiar, I'd be happy to plug you in or get you the information about grief well, specialists. Me, well, for me, it wasn't it wasn't grief. 
But no, but grief is grief is change. Yeah. I mean, your losses, you had three major losses. You we had four major losses. You had the loss of your body as you knew it because mm -hmm. of the chemo chemotherapy, that was a major change. Mm -hmm. You had three deaths. Those were some major changes. Besides your mental deal, you had your job change, you had to retire. You had all these changes that could that would people would say cause you grief because you have to reorganize, reacquaint yourself with the new you, whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. Grief recovery helps with that because it doesn't deal with grief per se as much as it deals with change. The change, you're right about that. But see, I never knew anything about that. And I, I've known nothing about it until today. We hear about grief counselors in schools after these are the tragedies we have, and that's probably what they worked them through, but never thought of it for these are great the change. You know, what I went through was not only changes, it was the grief of it. That's yeah, and people, people don't understand that, oh, it's not grief, I'm not grieving because of this. No, it's a change mm -hmm. that you have to process, reprocess, whether it's a happy change or, in your case, right. negative changes. Right. Yes. What advice or help would you give someone who also hides pain? What kind of pain? Physical or emotional? Just, uh, maybe sadness or mental. Yeah, just mental stuff. What, what advice or help would you give them? Um, depending on the age, I would first I would say seek help if they're going through something that they just can't get through. If your young person is still home with mom and dad, start with mom and dad. Mom and dad might take it to the pastor, pastor involved. And then from there, it might be assessed, well, we need to get a little more help from a doctor. So it's just, it's just go through different stages of it. A young person, I'd say, start with mom and dad. Talk to them. Let them know how you feel. Let them know what's going on. And then they'll help you with the correct, with the, with the action, because they, they know the resources. Does that help you? Good question. I've got a biological sister that um, struggles. And she struggled, and uh, she has some kind of a chemical imbalance. And the doctors gave her some medicine, and she hates the medicine. It makes her gain weight. So she'll take it, and she'll get better, and then she'll crack it, and she'll take three quarters of the pill. And she'll get down there, and then she'll not feel pretty good. Get down to a half a pill, then down a quarter pill. And then she'll call me up, she's all out of sorts, and I said, do you stop taking your medicine? Because we've been through this cycle probably about a half a dozen times in 30 years. And finally she got to the pain, to the point where she said, I got a chemical balance, I'm gonna take this and I'm gonna be overweight. But, but that's the first time I really realized that, that there are physical things, that if some people have low blood sugar, they have to take the insulin. She's got something missing and she's gotta have that to function, to make those neuron connections. That's right. And if you've got someone like that, it could be something chemical that could be fixed. I do believe chemicals like that are overprescribed, but there are situations when they're just, just what's needed. So it depends. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shane Hale. I'll get to you just a second. Who, who talked to you? I mean, I mean, a child or a person. Who talked to you, Pastor? Who talked to you? Go talk to somebody. A child. Go talk to your mom and dad's daughter. Go up the line. Because another thing, put pushing suicide aside, is 
people who have sleeping disorders, they're going to go into depression and anxiety. Right. And because it promotes it, because again, I told you my story about laying in the bed, when's the sun going to come up, when the rooster's going to crow, when's the alarm going to go off? It's just, ugh, can't deal with it the next day. But sleeping disorders will, will, will trigger, will start depression and anxiety. And how do you know when someone has a sleeping disorder? Well, they'll tell you, I didn't sleep good in a week, I didn't sleep good in a month. If you constantly hear them, hear them, hear them, something's going on. With me, I developed a sleeping disorder from the change. I'm on something called ventaflaxine, not ventaflaxine, uh, trazodone. And it's non-addictive, and it's, it's something with the serotonin in the brain, but it's, 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 it's replacing something that I can't produce anymore to go into a full night's sleep. I wasn't sleeping, and that was going on too. I just couldn't sleep. That's miserable, and it, it will cause all the effects that we're talking about. So that's something else to be aware of. Some, some people have sundowners. That, that too. You get certain time, times of the year, and the, the lack of sunlight just, yeah. you know, and... Uh, and I'm not sure I know what to do to help them, but you just need to talk with them and help them do it because they'll get in sleep control too. They might need the advice. Yeah. And you just My pass. sister moved to Arizona. Um, she moved to Arizona. You, exactly what she did you, have a, you have a question? So I've got a question and a comment. Talk about hiding this thing. Um, did you realize, was there a conscious effort of hiding this? Or did you realize that you were hiding I realized it. I was, I was trying to keep going, ignore it, do, didn't believe it was happening. Do you think that we create an environment yes. in our churches and amongst our families, whether we agree, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, that, um, that that's just too odd for us to talk about. It's just... It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and do it. Um, do you think, you know, not at Union or Precise or anywhere else, just but generally within conservative Christianity, old traditional Christianity, that that environment facilitated your hiding it or, or had a hand in your hiding it? I, to answer that, yes, that started when I was young. And... That was, I went back to my dad's ethic. Mm -hmm. If you're sick and you get, out, get up, get out of bed and deal with it. Also, even depression, I was taught that it didn't exist. So therefore, it's, it started as a child with me. And it, I can't, I don't know other families that this happened to, but my, that's my experience. The, 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 the comment is that this isn't just a concern for the folks that we this is a concern for us. Yeah. And it may be, you know, you know, one of the logical reasons to get seminary is one bad professor teaching one bad theology, teaching 5,000 people, goes to 5,000 churches, and, and you have, you know, from you know, from a spark to a fire, you know, a la Schofield Bible, you know, Darby notes of the end times, and, and it just it turns into something bigger. You know, we're dealing in, you know, I've spoken with a lot of you local ministers about a local pastor that is dealing with some mental health stuff in a, in a major way, and we're trying to help them out down there. Um, and and there is this sense of, of of hiding it, but also being blind to it. 
you know, and, and, and when we put ourselves in that position, and we don't recognize the mental um, health of our, of our ministry with each other, holding each other accountable, we are not just affecting ourselves. You know, we're affecting congregations. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just recognizing it for us, it's not just recognizing it with our people, it's recognizing it within the ministry and in ourselves because that is highly, highly impactful to large numbers of people. And so pulling each other and rec, you know, getting together like this, talking, looking at Facebook posts, you can notice through social media changes as well as anything else. If you're on social media, friend all your church folks. <laughs> and look at their lives, and, and you can see these changes. Mm-hmm. And, and we've got to do that with one another. You know, just these recent episodes have made it very clear because these churches, as much as we hate to admit it, in a lot of cases are tied into our own mental, spiritual, and physical health. And, and we can't allow those things to cause the struggle of the churches. That's it's been it's been clear over the last month. Um, so uh, thank you, you know, for for for, for bringing this out and, and having this conversation. It's, well, if we if, thank you for the comment. If you think about it, in years past, not only in Primitive Baptist but in um, uh, in, in other forms of churches, you never talked about it. You never brought it up. It was it was kept away. And now we're talking about it. It was as prevalent then as it is now and even more now if we look at it that way so it's it's important very important and even in in raising our children you know it can start back then by just certain things what we're doing with our children it could it could be going on in in our church with certain little things that are changing people things are changing people Um, social media it's changing people. It's added a, a lot of anxiety. Yes. A lot. A tremendous. I don't. I don't look at faith. I don't do it. I don't. I don't like it. I don't do it. In fact, there's certain things I don't do anymore. I. That's another recovery part. Is I stay away from certain things that they call triggers. I know what they are. I just don't go to them. So, those things. And then you had said even social media, is pay attention to what people say. Pay attention to what people put on Facebook. Just comments because those comments lead to actions and they could be critical. I'm not saying that go ahead and get a Facebook account and start looking at everybody, but people talk. <laughs> people talk. I want to talk back to your question a little bit. The, the response, talk to somebody, is a lot better than talking to nobody. Yeah. But if you can pick a really good somebody, that's better because there's a lot of people with credentials. You know, there's people with, there's people with medical degrees and, and PhDs and stuff. And a lot of highly trained, specialized doctors have drinking, drugging, and mental problems. Mm-hmm. You know, just because they have the credential doesn't mean they're really in a position to help you. Because look for somebody whose life is peaceful, full of love, yeah. that has your confidence, and you can pretty safely say that they would have your welfare and give you good advice, especially if you know they're... If they're not, and it's not just somebody who quotes a lot of scripture or something, somebody whose life is over the years has unfolded that it's being lived in love and thoughtfulness. 
physical pain, it means something is happening to your body. And it might not be catastrophic. It might be just a cramp that's a muscle, you know. So there again, you would seek, first of all, I like what Marty had said about somebody you're comfortable with. Um, but your parent, you, at your age, your parents are, your, I would think, your first line to go to. Um, or somebody comfortable, you know, talk to your brother. And your brother, your brother's here. You know, you talk to your brother about something like this, he might say, wow, I need to tell dad, I need to tell mom. You know, that's how the chain starts because if you're telling somebody, that means you're wanting something, you're wanting somebody to know and maybe something to get done about it. You're, you're reaching, that's a reach out. So, you know, again, it's the same, I feel the same principle. How do you feel about that, Brother Mike? Yeah. You know, pain is actually a good sick, you know, somebody that can't feel pain, that's a, I've known somebody like, in fact, one friend of mine lost the ability to feel pain and had backed into a, his elbow into a hot surface and burned through to third degree burns that he never felt. So he experienced a good bit of physical damage because so the pain is a signal that something is not right. If it's a short term pain, then your body's already taken steps to correct it. If it's a persistent pain, you know, you may have some inflammation and you need something, you know, you may need ice, you may need turmeric, you may need, you know, you may need um, a stronger medical intervention for that pain. Don't self-medicate, you know, don't, don't knock it out with, uh, with, uh, yeah, with alcohol and marijuana and stuff, you know, go for the, and, and a lot of it, like right now, I've got arthritis in my back. The, uh, I've got chiropractic care from a guy that was a mechanical engineer and went to a chiropractor. He's actually, he's got lasers and weight sensors to get, it's helping, the pain's going away. Physical therapy, so a lot of pain is just a matter of finding the correct management for it. Uh, but there, but there are other things, and and seek somebody out that's got a good, a good track record with that. That you know, the father of modern medicine, the first principle is first do no harm, and uh, there's a tendency now to go straight for heavy duty prescription stuff, and uh, there's a time for that, but just be wise and cautious and try the more conservative approaches first. I, I think this would be good for you too. The young, the young uh, people here is, and all of the older people know this. 
when you're young, your body's in terrific shape. It's still growing, it's still, it's, it's still learning. But what we go through, and even having cancer, you can't feel cancer. I didn't feel it until I felt it, and the damage was already going. But um, there, there are things that we can do for things that we can't feel. And, that's, and we have doctors for that. We have physicals, we have colonoscopies, we have eye exams, we, we get our teeth fixed, we get you know, everything that is out there, so it's preventative for you. The, the things are out there. So as you get older, you'll start seeing a doctor here, then more doctors here, and I mean, back on the background, how many doctors do y'all see now? You know? We, you know, and, and the doctor might find something that you can't feel. And what Marty said is something that you felt is not there anymore, you know, it fixes itself, or if it comes back, it might need to be addressed. But you'll go through that in your life. It's getting better, but mental health is kind of a taboo subject. You know, we don't we don't know a whole lot about. It. I mean, if you got a broke arm, I can see that. If you got a broke leg, I can see that. And 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 it's got better, but at one point in time, it was thought of as being be, suck it up. Mm -hmm. You be a weak, be a man. Okay? Mm -hmm. You know, but we we I appreciate what you're doing today. I mean, it's, it's raising all our awareness, and, uh, and, and we need to be more observant and more mm -hmm. conscious of this. You know, I, I, I'll be first here. I don't understand it all. I've, I've never had a whole lot of trouble with it, you know, and, and, but, uh, but it is a real, real thing. But as pastors, you should know more about it. I don't. And the suggestion back there, who like that suggestion because... You know, I went to see a psychiatrist and get some medicine, and they wanted me to talk to somebody. And who do I go to? Well, somebody in our in our care, in our in our program of our doctors. And right. I I didn't, you know, I didn't like some of them. I changed them. Yeah, yeah right. one comment about what was said about the Christian side. Our experience was um, we learned a lot from that. And uh, modern psychology and psychiatry. If you go to them and you start saying, "I feel like a terrible sinner," they're going to go, "Well, that's your problem." You got low self-esteem. So you, you the, Christian, there are some good Christian psychologists out there who do appreciate what we believe and mm -hmm. will work with that. And the other thing that's helpful too is that you might um, you know, go to a, a cardiologist or a gastro doctor on a friend's recommendation. Um, again, our experience was it's very helpful to take somebody with you when you're selecting a psychologist or a psychiatrist because in some ways you're in no state of mind to make that decision by yourself. And they will allow you to go with the permission of your mm -hmm. you know, friend or family. That, now that's and very sit good in advice. on those first few sessions. Help them make the decision that this is a good selection. Um, to, to add to that, Debbie went on some of them with me and they would ask me a question, I would give them the answer. You know what she did? No, 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 no. That's not what it is. <laughs> she puts that. Good friend, seek psychiatric help, and, uh, and he ended up getting off work disabled. But over the years, he came back. He, and everybody told him, "You crazy coming back to work?" He said, "No, I need to. You know, I need That's to." Right. But the, one of the first things the psychiatrist told him, and and he was church at that time, and he was in. He was in a leadership role. It was causing him a lot of anxiety. But the first thing they told him, you need to quit and go to church. And I told him, I said, that would throw up a red flag to me. But, <laughs> but uh, he, long story short, he come back to work, finished up his time, he retired. He go to church every Sunday. And, and he is, uh, he had made, I mean, a lot of prayers. And then he, he did, he had, uh, I always say recovered or what, but he did good. Yeah, you, know? you can recover. I agree. I'm recovered.
and still looking for recovering the rest of my life. Yes, sir. Would you want to share some of your um, signals that you get? Triggers. Triggers that, um, that uh, you are aware of? Yeah, oh, yes, yeah. Um, um, converse, certain conversations. Negative conversations. I can't, I can't get involved in negative conversations anymore. I avoid them. I don't get involved because they bring on anxiety. Um, other things are is I was really involved in our family estate and everything that had happened, everything came to me, everything, all the funerals came to me, everything came to me to take care of everything. After um, I did all the bills, I did all the bills in the estate, and then after I came out of uh, um, the hospital, my wife took them all over. So that's a trigger too, is not to take on too much. Knowing not what, how much to take on and not to take on too much, overcommitting. Um, do I overcommit still? I do, but not like I did before, but I catch myself in it. I catch myself in it, and I stop it. Because I don't want that feeling to come back. I know what it feels like. I'll never forget it. And every day, I, I, every, every uh, awakened hour, you know, I, I have these pains that I know of, and that's a reminder that the Lord left me with, and I'm glad he did. I'm just Most very time. thankful. Does this uh, fatigue... Uh, you know, make make things worse. Just what now? Fatigue. Yes. Just just being tired. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Fatigue can happen in many different ways, and one of them, no sleep, is one of them. Yeah. Low sleep is one of them. It, it does. It, it's it's part of it too. That's a good question. Getting up too early, going to bed too late. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Proverbs. That's right. Ecclesiastes. Yeah. That's your observation. We have someone who struggles with depression. And I have noticed uh, a point where people are willing to extend grace, but then they get tired of it. If you're walking around with a broken leg, I'm going to continue to help you with that broken leg until that broken leg's better. But what I've noticed is that, at least in my circumstances, it's we've helped once. I don't think it's better. Um, and that there's admonitions about not being weary and well-doing. And you have to set an example of that because I get frustrated too trying to encourage you. And then and there's professional help involved. Um, but that's something you should be aware of is that when this does crop up, it's a long-term thing and, and you will have to deal with your own personal irritations and those around you not continuing to show that charity because it's hard to see. Let me bring something back up on the, on the triggers. Is If you recognize what got you to where you were, you'll know to avoid them like a drug addict. There are certain triggers that he has to stay out of. In other words, not, going to the, not having the same friends, not going to the same places he used to, um, maybe moving because those things that he was around triggers him to go back where he was. Even with me, I can't have the family be bringing me problems anymore. Those are triggers because there were so many on me. So it's being aware of what the triggers are to avoid them. Addiction is also something to recognize any kind of change there. It's just, you know, it is, it is true that that can be the problem, but it's often a symptom of, of depression. 
think that's exactly right because it's a ma they're masking their feelings. Right. My son was going through that. I understand. How is your son? Um, back in March, I had a um, nice Toyota Tundra pickup truck. We live on some property, and he took my truck down in the woods, and um, he was consuming. He built a campfire in the bed of the truck. What? In the bed of the truck, he built a campfire. And that's through addiction. It blew up like a bomb because of the codings in there. He's in Forsyth County Jail right now. The thing about it is, is he's been in jail before, and living with this at home, and this has brought on a lot of anxiety and depression with me too, this is my son. That's a lot part of it too. But I know where he is. I know he's safe. I know he's sober. I know he's not using. I know he's not gonna overdose. I'm at peace. My wife and I are most peaceful is in jail. He's up for trial, he's gonna be getting out. He's 32. It, start, it could start over again. It could. You know, him going back and using again, we're prayerful of Dutton, but he's just self-destructive. And it, it's a it's a bad thing. Heroin's what he uses. Heroin and that. So that's a trigger you can't eliminate. I can't. That's exactly right. I can't because it's there. What we do though though is my wife and I is is he contacts her because he told her to contact her and she doesn't tell me everything. That's how to control it. I don't want to hear. I can't. I can't. I can't deal with it. As much as we want to get away from it, it's still there. But and that's putting a lot on her. A lot on her. But she deals with it better than I do, and I'm very conscientious and aware to watch her because I know what can happen. Did you, did you say earlier that you still take medication? I do. Yes. Because you don't. Produce something you used to? That's correct. Well, yeah. What is that? I, I don't remember right now. I don't remember what there it was. Some, there is some chemical that you don't produce anymore. It, yeah. That, that one one chemical produces another okay. that, that helps you with you know your your, your condition. It, help, it, help, it would help you with the ability to cope with yes. situations. Exactly. Yes. Because I know I'll never be the way I used to be. That took a long time to understand, too. And that, and you're that way because your body made a change? Was this it? I, I, maybe I keep asking the same question. That's I mean, uh, the, the chemo, did that cause any of this, or this was already? No, it was, the chemo. It was the chemo. The chemo caused all those. Okay. Yes, okay. and it was, okay. it was diagnosed that way. So the chemo caused the issue that you have. I think what Brother, what Brother Moses mentioned a while ago was us not being able to see what's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. well, the Bible says the hidden things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to, to us. And, and that, is, that is kind of, I guess, our fault. I can't see what's wrong, and I also can't see progress. Mm -hmm. Only you know that. Mm -hmm. Knowing human beings, though, we do see people who pretend... I don't think that's your case, mm -hmm. but you know, we, 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 we know people who pretend to have a problem to gain the system, so to speak. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. you know, at, at what, how do I help and how do I push away? Or how do you see it? I think your yeah. question is how do you see it? How do I see what's wrong with you and how do I see the progress in you? Yeah. Or is that, 
or I might not even need, should I not even care about that? My goal is to care about you, period. Well, I think the answer to that would be um, what you know, being aware of knowing what the person is. Like Brother Marty, we use a good example. Brother Marty knows now, he, can, he, he would be able to, or my wife would be able to detect changes, habits, no matter what they are. They would be able to detect that and know something is happening and to address me. If you have a family member or someone in your congregation or a friend, the better you know them, the more, the more you'll know that they're changing. There's a, there's a two-way communication in the church that we need to facilitate and pray for. Do you remember the time that Elisha, there was a, a wealthy Shunammite woman that built a little room that he could stay in, and then later on she and her husband had a child late in life, and then the child had a headache and died. And uh, she didn't hesitate. She gathered up her dead son and got a chariot and rode to him, and when she got within near to him, you know, he sent his servant to find out how she was and things, and she just passed the servant, and Elisha said, uh, something is troubling her, and the Lord hath hid from me what it is. So I think sometimes the Lord will give, you know, his messenger some insight into some things that sometimes he wants, and there's a need to develop the communication on both. There's a need for those that do minister to try to be as vigilant and ask the Lord for as much insight. There's a need for those of us who need to receive ministry, and I say those of us because this is a two-way thing, to ask the Lord for the ability to ask for it. So, you know, it's kind of like the Word of God is God's Word coming to us, and prayer is our Word our coming up to God. And not only does there need to be that two-way with us and God, there needs to be that two-way with us and us. And, uh, you know, the Lord show me things, and then when the Lord says no, then say, show my brothers and sisters to tell me things. <laughs> you know? Brother Marty, the thing about that story that just occurred to me was the fact that Elisha recognized she was troubled. Something was wrong. She didn't know what he didn't know what was wrong, but he knew something was wrong. That's, that's good. So he recognized at least that much. Mm, yeah, yeah. And then at least it could go and ask. Right. And that's a matter of asking the Lord for sensitivity, insight, compassion. You know, ladies are really good at that. Yeah. My wife has this uncanny ability to be able to see something's wrong, whereas I'm just completely oblivious. Yeah. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. I just want to make one comment. As pastors and, and, and trying to oversee congregations, if somebody in your congregation commits suicide, don't blame yourself because it may be hid from you. And I can tell you from personal experience that only by the grace of God reaching out and dragging me back out of that grateful 
Nobody ever knew that event happened in my life until I told you 20 years later. So, there is that side of the question. That's right. Also. That's right. Uh, I've got one more and, question. And you, I'm sorry. you mentioned that in your talk, you know, that you were hiding. hiding oh, yeah. Hiding. Yeah, I appreciate that. One last question. By the raise of hands, how many of known somebody who has attempted suicide and survived. <laughs> Let's see them all go up. <laughs> okay. Amen. Thank you, brother. You know, in addition to Job, there were two men that asked God to kill them. They were suicide. And they ended up on either side of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. So the Lord can do mighty things with people that have gone through dark times. I appreciate it. Supper. In two hours, six o'clock. In that time, feel free to go over and take a nap in the sanctuary, talk to each other. Uh, in that time, feel free to sign up for which month you go. 